And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. His book, Game Change, and the subsequent movie made him a kind of media celebrity, and he is everywhere on your television dial. Uh, as well as writing for the Bloomberg political site, which he co-edits with Mark Halperin. Uh, John Heilman is one of the most valuable and interesting guys you'll meet uh, in politics, and uh, not just in terms of his insights into the process, but his insights into people. We talked the other day about his career in journalism, which included, I learned, a small side trip into politics and this very, very crazy 2016 campaign. John Heilman, welcome. Uh, I've always wanted to ask you this question, and now is the time. Uh, It's really a two-part question. Have you always been interested in politics, and have you always been a smartass? And you can order them. You can answer them in whatever order you'd like. Seems like an unnecessarily harsh way, hostile way to start this interview. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being interested in politics. (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't know if I've always been interested in politics, but I've been pretty interested in politics for a pretty long time. I, you know, you I was, grew up in L.A., right? I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, and were, were your folks from California? No, they were Nobody's mid- from California. Midwesterners. Midwesterners. My dad was from Milwaukee. Uh, and my mother was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Huh. How'd they end up out there? You know, my dad came out in the same great migration for a lot of people that went to L.A. who were engineers. He was an electrical engineer, and he, in the time when a lot of uh, aerospace companies and big engineering firms were populating Southern California and Northern California, there was just a huge post-World War II demand for people who had technical skills. So he was the only person from his family who ever left the Midwest. Almost his entire family Hmm. stayed in Wisconsin. So he, I always thought of my father as a relatively conservative guy and he was kind of a culturally conservative. I don't mean like in the far right crazy way. I mean like in the, you know, modest kind of, he's like a Gerald Ford Republican, you know, who's voted had voted for Republicans his whole life. Until Which is what Midwestern Republicanism to- was. Totally. A progressive Republican from Wisconsin, again, modest in his uh, in his politics and in his aspirations in a lot of ways. And he had voted for Republicans up until Gore v. Bush when he heard some interview with George W. Bush where he heard that George W. Bush would have preferred to be the commissioner of baseball than be president of the United States. And he thought that was disqualifying, not because he didn't love baseball, because he did, but because he thought, you know, if there's some job you'd rather have than be president, you shouldn't be president. Well, the real question is, why did Major League Baseball pass on George W. Bush for commissioner of baseball, but the American people elected him president of the United States? That is a very profound question to which I, I admire I Bush, admit. by the way, for being such a baseball fan. I do, too. I do, too. But it, I will just I, just in the story of my father, he that was it for him. And he's not voted for Republican since then. Um so that was his deal. Um, and he uh, w- he's like the least likely person you would have thought that would say, fuck it, I'm going to throw all my stuff in the back of the car and drive to California when no one in his family had ever done that and no one in his family subsequently ever did. But he did. And just he was like, there's a job. And he moved to Santa Monica. And was his was, was your mom, were they married at that time? They were not. They had just started dating. And he'd met her in Milwaukee um, uh, a few years or about a year or so before he moved to California. And he basically moved to California got there, kind of looked around and thought, you know, uh, I think I'd like to have Betty here with me. Picked up the phone and said, um, you should come out to California. We'll get married if you're into that. And the, she did. If you're huh? into that. And he was, she said, great. And so she, like, the, like him, the only person from her family who ever left uh, at that to that point, who ever left the Midwest. And she was from a tiny, tiny town wow. on the Upper Peninsula. Tiny, like a town with like 75 people in it called Loretto that's like not very far from like Iron River, Iron River, and uh, Iron Mountain, and Ishpeming, and all those places that I know you're familiar with, given that you have uh, you no, live my, in my colleague Tim Skozik, who sits here yeah. and helps on this podcast, yeah. is nodding here because he's from Michigan. So right, he he knows all these places. Well, and I, I'm I, from South. I have a house in South. I was going to say yes. you're in a slightly fancier part of the state. Let's yeah, put it that it's way. It's the Chicago part of Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, so they both picked up and moved to California, and and were you know classic Californian. Californians of that generation, they moved out in the late 50s, like 58, I think, and lived in Santa Monica for a while and then moved to the San Fernando Valley when it was just like getting built, essentially. And there are incredible pictures of our house 
on the far west end of the San Fernando Valley when the tract houses had just been laid out there. As you know, it was like the valley was like Levittown in La La Land. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah. And there were just all these tract houses, like five different, basically all the same size with like four different uh, – uh, kinds of uh, uh, designs to them, but they're all like mirror images of each other, just lined up the street with no trees, no grass, just dirt, you know, and the stuff had just been laid, like where they were just laying down the sidewalks yeah. and planting the saplings. Uh, and then that's where I was uh, born and raised. And you were born and raised in a, I mean, California is a political uh, kind of ecosystem, all its own. Sure. Uh, what, what, what do you remember about that and the politics of California? It was sort of – you probably grew up post-Jerry Brown, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no. Yeah. He, he was there. He was yeah. governor uh, in the 70s. The 70s, yeah. Kid. My earliest political consciousnesses was all about um, – were all about the Brown – Dynasty. Of course, I always when I go to California. By the way, I always say I'm. I've been at this so long that Jerry Brown was governor when right. I started covering politics. Yes. Of course, he still is. But yeah, so the Brown dynasty was huge on the Democratic side, and Reagan was dominant as an idea and a person on the Repub- on the Republican side. And Proposition 13, which was the pro- probably pretty the, popular in the Valley, too, was, right? very popular. The po- it led the property tax revolt and obviously f- affected a lot of the politics of the state in a pretty profound way. And those are like the thing when I'm thinking about as a kid growing up, what are the things that stick in my mind politically? You know, that there was this family called the Browns that had run a lot of stuff in, in Democratic politics. And there was this kind of insurgent character named Reagan who was governor and now was running for president. And that the property tax revolt was a big key to understanding why Reagan was popular in California and what, and what the basis of his appeal was going to be to the country, which was, you know, I'm going to cut your taxes in a variety of different ways. Those are the things I remember. From, did you do stuff in politics then? I did not. I mean, I, I was when I, I was super interested in sports and I was super interested in politics. I wasn't active. I didn't like you. I did not, uh, unlike you, I did not, I, I did not like go around and was not a leafleter or was involved in yes. political campaigns or did yeah. any of that stuff when Freakish. I was a kid. No, I'm well, I mean, you know, just, you know, there are kids who do that and then kids who are more observers. And I think the people who have, you're interesting because for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that the journalistic and the observational tendencies that you have exist in tension with the activist want to be part of it thing. That's part of what makes you an interesting, compelling figure for most of us who are in the journalistic business, right? The, the observational outsider thing is just so predominant that I'm not a joiner. Like I'm not a joiner of anything, right? So politics is one big thing you can join, but I'm not that person. That's I'm, a, by I'm the way, the, I'm a watcher. And that's a, a quality, not being a joiner, being an iconoclast is to me one of the prerequisites for being a good journalist. You know, I, I think that uh, being skeptical of institutions, um, skeptical by the way, but not cynical. Yeah, which is I think the you know today we see a lot of cynicism about institutions. That's kind of frightening. Yeah, but skeptical is sort of necessary. I always thought one of the one of the um, one of the paradoxes uh, of the new. When I left the newspaper, I left because uh, the Chicago Tribune was becoming too corporate. Uh, I felt like it, like the bottom line started taking over. And, you know, they said, well, if you stay, you know, you could do really well. or You could rise right. up. You could be editor of this newspaper yeah. someday. And I thought, I- I'm not a good corporate right. soldier. And I don't think good reporters really are. Yeah, you know? I think that's true. And I think, you know, one of the, it's not just institutions, although 100% skepticism without cynicism um, and it's a tough line to walk sometimes yeah. um, towards institutions is really important. But I also find that true of like true believers, you know, speaking of get, yeah. mentioning a, the book title yeah. of your, yeah. I'm inherently when I meet people who are true believers, I am both in, in, intrinsically immediately skeptical and kind of like suspicious of people who are true believers and yet not cynical about it. And sometimes really inspired by those people. You know, it's like I'm a fallen, I'm a lapsed Catholic. Right, or at least I was a raised Catholic. I was never really a Catholic. In any Francis point. hasn't brought you back, right? But I went to, but I went to, I went to Catholic school. You mm-hmm. know, I went to Catholic elementary school and I went to Catholic uh, uh, high school. And when I meet Catholics, like um, Catholics who are really entranced by the mysticism of the Mass and are really deeply moved by that, I find it kind of inspirational yeah. and and affecting to me. And yet I'm. Uh, also really skeptical about people who are zealots about religion. And I myself find all of it like just a little bit, it's not, it's not appeal. It's not me. I'm not, I would never be that person, even though I can kind of see what's powerful about it to people that are that people, that person. And obviously they sometimes go too far in various forms of religious extremism, but 
at the right level, I find it kind of both something I cannot participate in at all, but also something that I don't find wholly unadmirable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, look, I'm sort of in the same boat. I mean, I'm uh, I'm Jewish and I take a lot of uh, solace and um, feels warmth toward the traditions of of the faith. And it reminds me of uh, my you know, my, my family. Yeah. I mean, it's my link to my family. It's There's a rootedness there, but I'm just not, you know, I'm not a, religi- a religious right. person. Yeah. So, uh, so you went to, you went on to Northwestern University and you went, studied journalism. Yeah. So Why, why'd you choose to do that? Well, funnily enough, like the, I, the only thing I knew from coming out of high school was that I was going to write. It was the only, like when I, I very, uh, relatively early age, like maybe ninth grade, um, I had experiences writing some things for which that I was both proud of and that I was praised for. Mm-hmm. And that kind of both those things were, I was into it and enjoy, I enjoyed doing it. And then I got good feedback and that's, you know, obviously the cycle that leads people towards things. And I, when I left, when I was getting ready to go to college, I didn't know what I would be a journalist about. I was really interested in music, film, television, popular culture, broadly speaking. I was really interested in sports. I had participated in sports and played a lot of baseball. You sound like a website. But sorry, you sound like a website. You sound like a great website for today. Yes, I mean, but so I was interested in all this culture stuff. I was interested in all this sports stuff, and I was also really interested in politics. I had like all these things I was interested in, but I knew I would end up writing about some of it, all of it, part of it. I didn't know what, but I thought I'd be a journalist. That was the only thing I thought was my. I had never had any other aspiration apart from to be a professional baseball player for a brief period of time. But professionally, that was clear to me. And, and what made you decide not to do that? Uh, well, the, my, 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 tor- my torn rotator cuff in my sophomore year of high school was one, was one reason. Um, and probably, um, I, though I thought I was quite talented, probably a lack of talent too. But uh, the injury gave me an excuse, kind of like Donald Trump talking about a rigged election. Like when I didn't become a major league baseball player, I could point to my fucked up shoulder. Um, it, so I knew I was going to be a journalist. And truly from that, from the time, from that moment until today, I believe it's like the only thing I've ever been interested in doing and the only thing I could do. Like, I think if I wasn't doing this, either talking about uh, what I talk, talking on television or writing and interpreting, observing, reporting, analyzing, explaining, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be sleeping in a bus shelter somewhere. I'd be like a junkie someplace. And I, I don't, I don't know that I have wow, any other stark, I, but I don't have any other professional. I've never had, there's never been another profession that I thought I really want to do that. And there's never been a profession where I looked at it and thought, well, I'd be good at that. So this has been kind of monomaniacal. So to answer your question, I wanted to go to some, I had this kind of parochial sense that like getting, learning how to do journalism. I now am very skeptical about journalism yeah, schools. Yeah, as well. But at the time, I, when I was 17, 16, it was like, there's this great school called Northwestern that has this esteemed journalism school called Medill. And they, as they explained it to me, they had a relative internal skepticism about journalism school, even at Medill. So they were very encouraging of the notion that you should have a second major. And if you looked at all the journalism departments around the country, there was only one that was also attached to a top-notch liberal arts college, university. And Northwestern was that, right? Great liberal arts university with a great political science department. And also this journalism school that gave you some kind of credential. So that was to me, and the campus was beautiful. And I thought, well, this is kind of great. I'll do journalism and political science and, and, and do that. Yeah. And that's what I did. You know, I agree with you on this point about journalism schools. I mean, I, I'm biased because I never took a journalism course right. in my life. Journalism is one of those things that you have to learn by doing. Yeah, Probably the best thing that uh, journalism schools do is hook their kids up with internships. internships. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was part of the thing at Medill was the big thing they said was, you're going to be here for your entire freshman year. You're going to take one journalism class out of 12. Your entire sophomore year, you're going to take one journalism class out of 12. In your junior year, your main thing is we're going to send you to a newspaper for for a semester, for a quarter. Um, so you'll get to work at a newspaper. And then when you come back in your fourth year, your senior year, you'll do a, like you can do some a magazine journalism class or a broadcast journalism class. But that seemed like a relatively light touch to me. It wasn't like anybody was claiming right. half of your classes are going to be journalism instructional courses. So what was your other focus? Political science. Oh, yeah, you said that. Yeah. So the um, uh, and, and Chicago was an interesting play. You were here in the 80s. Yeah. So were you here during the Harold Washington uh, sure. years? I was here 83 to 87. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, those were tumultuous years Incredible, in incredible years to be here. A great city. To, I mean, Chicago is like one of my favorite cities in the world, but it was a great – the politics of Chicago in those four years was fantastic. Yeah. 
what'd you take away? What was your observation as an observer of uh, Harold and that whole era here? Well, I, you know, it's obviously was just at the at the biggest. I don't think I did not know as much about the history. First African for those who don't yes. know, first African Amer- uh, American mayor of Chicago got elected in 1983 in what was the most tumultuous mayoral race in, probably in the history of the city. Right. I mean, I think I knew. I, I I did not know as much then as I do now about the history of about the the, the history of how racism got institutionalized geographically and inst- and and economically in the city as I as I again as I know now. But I knew something about it, and I knew something about the ways in which segregation had happened here and how public housing had gotten built, and that there was this enormous racial divide. And I. You know, there's obviously racism everywhere. Um, but in LA, it was very, when I grew up, like I had a lot, of, we had a lot of Mexican Americans on my street, even in suburban, in Levittown and La La Land, right? We had, we were, it was very melting potty where I grew up. And I didn't, I mean, we, there was, the African American population in LA was down, was, was segregated largely from the valley. But we had a lot of La- Hispanic Americans all over the valley and a lot of other things, uh, a lot of other f- flavors of ethnic diversity. So getting to Chicago and seeing the starkness of black and white in the city and knowing a little bit about that history, the fact that there was about to be the first African-American mayor in the city seemed obviously monumental, right? Yeah. And I, again, you, I know, were covering that, right? Yeah, I was, yeah. So like understanding, I think one of the things that I took away, again, was a very rudimentary, again, because I, I don't want to overstate how much of a savant I was, but a rudimentary understanding of the way in which the African-American base and the and the progressive whites in the city could make someone mayor. And that, that coalition was in some respects novel and was potentially really powerful, not just in Chicago, but in other places. And I know that's something that, you know, you learned from covering that and became, it helped inform your career when you got into the political strategy. It also was the coalition that helped uh, lift Barack Barack Obama Obama to, uh, to, to prominence. But the, the thing about uh, municipal politics, city politics is, uh, you do see in stark relief a lot of the things that ultimately are applicable uh, in a broader context. And coalitions is one of them. You know, you win primary elections in particular by having a base or a uh, a coalition of bases. Uh, and if you don't have one, it's very hard to win. And we saw that in this last primary season. You know, Donald Trump had a base. And the uh, 16 other candidates were sharing one. And uh, he was the beneficiary uh, of all of that. Um, Did you go right to graduate school after uh, after you got out of Northwestern? I did not. I went to... uh I had gotten admitted to a variety of, I didn't, still didn't really know what I wanted to do a hundred percent at that point, but I had gotten into a bunch of, I applied to a bunch of different things like some political science and government graduate schools and some journalism graduate schools. But not to newspapers or? No, I knew I wanted, I I thought I wanted to go to graduate school coming out of college. And then I got into a bunch of places and was a little confused about what I should do. And I had a girlfriend at the time who said she She was was confusing you. She was, she, well, she actually provided the clarity. She said, (laughs) she said, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to move to Washington DC and go work on Capitol Hill. And I said, that seems like a good like solution to this problem. I'm kind of befuddled by choice. I will just go to DC. Um, I had had incredibly, um, some interactions. I'd written a profile in the daily Northwestern in 1980, late, the late, fall of 86, maybe, above Joe Biden. I spent a bunch of time with uh-huh. Biden when Biden was thinking about running for president. I met this guy named Joe Kerry, who was a name you will be familiar with, who said, you should come work for Joe Biden. So yes. actually, when I, went away to, when I went away for the summer of 87, I thought I was going to come back after taking a trip to Europe and go work for the Biden campaign. Uh, and then there wasn't a Biden campaign. Um, yes, so, because he ran into a right, problem over, over plagiarism. Right. Um, so I came back and sort of said, well, let's go to D.C. And I moved to Washington and um, worked on Capitol Hill for one of the most corrupt members of Congress in uh, modern history, Freddie St. Germain, the former chairman of the House Banking Committee from Rhode Island, who was basically single-handedly responsible for the savings and loan crisis. Um, I didn't really know. Which part of that did you play a role in? No, no, no part. The part where, where as Freddie's career was falling apart, I was the press secretary who was like, what the fuck did I do? I signed (laughs) up to work for this guy? He's horrible. Um, It was was a kind of nightmare. I got to I hope those weren't direct quotes. No, no, not to the reporters in retrospect. I got there and I was kind of like, I need a job. You know, um, I did a little work for uh, Gephardt, 
mm-hmm. uh, on that presidential campaign, like just at a really, so I met Begala and Stephanopoulos at a very, like when I was 21 in that context. Um, and then I had got this job on Capitol Hill cause I needed to pay the rent. And then I was a bartender at, at Garrett's in Georgetown where I met a guy who was connected to this other guy named John Rendon, another name you'll know. Yes. Um, political consultant, later became involved in some very spooky endeavors, endeavors. But at that time, he was the guy who ran a lot of convention stuff for uh, Democratic groups. So for the, like the Association of State Democratic Chairs and the DSCC and the DGA. So in addition to working for Freddie St. Germain and working in a bar, um, I ended up going and spending a lot of the summer of 88 in Atlanta. Um, helping to at get the convention. at the convention, yeah. um, kind of trying to like like working on the inside of this convention for this with this group of young. I mean, we were all like kids who were working basically for free. Yeah. It's like kind of like oh, that's go, how it goes, man. Go to Atlanta for the summer, live in, on Peachtree Boulevard, and like and then I ended up sitting through that convention. In we a, Democrats are for workers' rights, except as it applies to the people who work for the, right. for you. Yeah. yeah. So I sat in a room at the Democratic convention, uh, in a room about half the size of this room, uh, running the what was then a novel thing, the satellite uh, uplink oh, operations yes. for a bunch of Democrats to connect up. So they could up. talk to their home district. Correct, right. Mm-hmm. And the guy who was running that operation, who later became thought of as a kind of a savant in that area, was Jeff Eller, yeah. who eventually went to work for the Clinton campaign. So I sat in a small room. My God, man, you were like, I was uh, everywhere. you, were, like you had Selleck. all these brushes with greatness. With greatness yeah. yeah. So I sat there with Eller in this room while he smoked a cigar in a windowless room for like about a week. And it was one of the most, I mean, I'm sure I still have like, I'm, <laughs> if I ever am diagnosed with lung cancer. He always had that cigar in his if, mouth. If I'm ever diagnosed with lung cancer, I will know who to blame because it was, it was fucking Jeff Eller in that Is this room. actionable? Yeah. I don't know. Possible. Yeah. Possible. I stay in touch with Eller just in case I need to come looking for him later if I ever get sick. Great character. Um, yeah. So that was – and then I, 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 but I knew I was going to go back to graduate school and, um, and I deferred all these places. And so I, yeah. at the end of that year, my plan had always been I would go to um, – I would go somewhere. And then I went in the fall of 88. I went up to the Kennedy School. At Harvard. At Harvard. Where is that? No, I'm um, just kidding. Yeah. We're going to take a short uh, break, and we'll be uh, right back with John Heilman. So I want to talk to you about your uh, experience <laughs> at Harvard, but yeah. I also want to ask you, I didn't realize until just now that you had had these couple of years of- One year. One year of, of intensive political experience. Yeah. That's amazing. All in one year that I, was. Huh? I did. There was a lot. Of, a lot of shit happened that year, and I won't even tell you about all the stuff that was criminal that happened in that time. Well, you already hinted that you were at least explaining a criminal enterprise. In, yeah, I wouldn't hill. say Saint Germain was a was a criminal. He was just corrupt. He was corrupt in the way that Danny Rostenkowski was corrupt. He was Jim he Wright ended up was being corrupt. a criminal, and I right. say that as someone who liked the guy. Well, I mean, yeah, but he. I don't know if Freddie was abusing the franking privilege, you know, like Rostenkowski was. But all of those committee chairs, those were all the committee chairs right. when I was there. John Dingle, not saying anything negative about, about Big John, but those they were like the grandees, right? You right. had John Dingle, Dan Rostenkowski, Freddie St. Germain, Jim Wright as the Speaker of the House. They were the, the, those old bulls. That yeah. was like, a, they had a generation of many Democratic... Many of whom ran into trouble. Yes, many of whom ran into trouble. And some because of whom... Because the, 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 the ethos that changed. Yes, right under their feet. Right. And, you know, Freddie lost in his primary yeah. in 88. So, like, I was with him for his last moment in Congress when, again, all these ethics charges and and, and various forms of... Um, uh, I mean, he was both he was both ethically compromised and also was more importantly was just in the pocket of a lot of industries. So there was like in a way that was not criminal in any way or even unethical, but was just kind of the par for the course so, for the way those guys served their constituents. So here's my question for you: Did in your future years yeah. of writing about this stuff, how uh, valuable was that one year you spent bumming around Washington and doing all of these different things? Pretty valuable in the sense that I met a lot of people who ended up being sources later. You know, mm-hmm. some of the people I've mentioned mm-hmm. are people that later, like I had, had made, I had at least a, some cursory contact with. And so they became people who I later talked to and as I became a journalist for real. Um, and also, I think just like, you know, Moving through those things, you just you. There are some things you just learn, right? It's like you come to a convention in a different way if you've seen what it's like from the inside. Yeah. Um, not like in some profound, you have some profound insight, but you just kind of get like what's going on behind the scenes a little bit better. This is why uh, you know I've been to ten of them as a reporter and as a in various roles, including helping run a couple of them. Yeah. And so I looked at these conventions this year with that from that perspective of someone who put these things on and who participated in them and the gulf between the two conventions was very apparent to right. me 
I think that Democratic convention was probably the best I've ever seen. And I and I and that hurts me to say because I was involved in a couple of pretty good ones. Well, I think it's like one of the key things. And again, this to the, to the sophisticates who listen to Axe Files, this will not be news. I think isn't that sort of... Uh, Aren't you just being repetitive? Yeah, redundant. It's kind of of too obvious to mention. (laughs) To them, this will be also too obvious. But just understanding that the purpose of this event is a is a television broadcast. That's all it is. Yes, exactly. Like, everything that goes on in the hall, all these people who are all right. jazzed up to come there, yeah. irrelevant, right. utterly irrelevant. Right, right. All the stuff that people fixate on is all and, bullshit. And it's really those the the hour that the networks are carrying it, right? And and the extent to which you have again, this is not to be like over, overburdened this experience with Eller was that there were two things going on. There was the national message that really mattered. That what was on national television in that primetime slot. And then there was what all these people were doing to broadcast in us in a coordinated way, whatever the big message talking points of that day were back to their districts, because that was also a big thing. Yeah. And it's the echo largely goes on under the radar now because, yeah. you know, it's not something you there's the, so the two things are operating, but it's all about that. And, yeah. and, and all the, those speeches that go on, fights, all those all those speeches that go on during the day are only valuable to the member who's giving it so that they can yes. send that footage back to right. uh, to their to their districts. So you went up to Harvard. Yeah. Uh, and what what you the Kennedy School of Government, what what provoked you to do that? Well, there was a you know, I thought that um, again, just thing being as kind of simplistic about this as possible. In the same way that I did actually think that having that year in Washington, like, again, I knew I didn't want to do politics. I knew I wanted to do journalism. So when I went for the year, I thought, let's do this as a learning experience and see what it's like kind of inside the halls of Congress and at a convention. And I also thought that learning about actual substance, you know, like like, that I would be covering public policy in some way. And so having some... So you went to the Kennedy School of Government with a mind toward being a journalist? Yes, 100%. 100%. I just, I went there entirely and they had a program then there was a master's in public policy program that was like very wonky and, and quantitative. And then there was this other program that was weirdly called the master's in public administration program, um, which had nothing to do with public administration, where you could basically design your own two years there and not only take classes at the Kennedy School, but also at Harvard Law School in the government department at MIT. And so I went and spent two years kind of focused on uh, the intersection of race, politics, and poverty. And sort of just did a deep dive into a bunch of history and a bunch of policy issues related to those things and took classes with some really great professors. Ended up working on this book that Bob Reich wrote um, at the time that was called The Work of Nations that became sort of like the template for the whole Clinton economic platform when he ran in 92, um, the putting people first agenda, human capital, you know, mm-hmm. trying to talk about how the new economy was going to change everything in terms so of... So you were like a... An, a you were. A research assistant. I, I researched it and I edited it um, mm-hmm. and worked really closely with Bob on it for two years. So I made like, I, I learned, I just learned a ton um, about globalization, about the information technology revolution, because those are things Bob was really thinking about in the context of that book. And then all the stuff that I actually did in classrooms. But the point was, do this and then go be a journalist, not do this and go into government. I was, I was trying to, you know on the maybe naive theory that it would be good as a journalist to actually know something, yes. you know, that I would try to know something. That's an interesting concept <laughs> you have there. Yeah. Um, you, uh, while you were there, you had another brush with future greatness. Yeah. Uh, you were uh, apparently infected by Eller with a appetite for tobacco. Yes. You were having a smoke. That's a fact. And who did you run into? I ran into the guy. It turned out he was actually a neighbor of ours, though I didn't really know that. He lived a couple blocks down from us in Somerville, was Barack Obama. Um, in just a, you know, uh, the story has been told many times and told by me many times because it's just sort of funny. But we were introduced by, I think, Julius Janikowski, um, who later became up head of the FCC. Became head of the FCC on a random day where, you know, the former future president bummed a smoke for me. You know, so. At the time, of course, it means nothing to you, except for the fact that he was, um, you know, in the two years that I was there was one of the years when he became the first African-American editor of the Harvard Law Review. So in the hyper-competitive environment that is Harvard, and especially Harvard graduate schools, whether it's the business school, the law school, the Kennedy School, there are a lot of people there who are trying to make a name for themselves and and have big plans for what they're going to do. He stood out and was was a figure of conversation even then, because of the fact he was a little bit older 
And yeah, because he went to he was a community organizer right. before he went to law school. So a lot of us were twenty three, twenty four, and he was. 28, 27, 28. And that matters at that, in that context, right? Because you have a lot of kids at Harvard Law School who come right out of undergraduate. So the guy who's five or six years older and who was very, you know, he had um, presentational skills that were above average at that point. And so you heard a lot of talk about him. And then he became the editor of the Law Review, which was something that was covered like in the New York Times. Right. So I think for people- so he was in, a figure. He was, a, people knew about this guy and people assumed, I mean, you know, they're, you know, what this is like, again, a hyper-competitive environment with a lot of people who all think they're the best at what they are. And they all think they're going to be a future Supreme Court justice or president or governor or whatever. He was a guy who people talked about as like, oh, that's someone you sh- people should pay attention to because he's- you know, in this class of rising African-American potential political talents and whether he does politics or not, he's impressive. And um, it was also a time when the law school was really roiled by a lot of racial controversy at the time, you know. And so there was a just it was a big topic on campus, you know, that I, that was in the very earlier of the a lot of the PC wars that happened. And, you know, there was a, there were anti-apartheid demonstrations and there was all kinds of stuff happening then that, again, a prominent African-American student who was catching people's eye, you just kind of like people knew about Barack Obama, right? And he kind of mediated a lot yes. of, of those things he when did. he was there, yeah. which and, is sort of a portent of things. Though. Yes, 100%. I mean, I wrote a piece about this in New York Magazine back when he first ran that was about, actually about Hillary in law school and Obama in law school and how the thing, the ways in which they behaved in their law school careers would foreshadow the way in which their political character would develop going forward. And of course, the key thing with your guy was that he became the editor of the Law Review with support of the conservatives. He was the, you know, the conservatives who were on that board looked at the law review election coming up and that was polarized between a very, very liberal candidate and a very, very conservative candidate. It was clear that the conservatives didn't have enough votes to elect their guy and that Obama was the one who had come to them and said, I will take you seriously and not marginalize you. And if I can get your support, you know, we'll have a better conversation than if you just let, if you guys don't support me though, this liberal is going to win. And so Obama, by knitting together a coalition of kind of left of center law review editors and the right law review guys who realized they were on the losing end and they were better off with a conciliator than with a strident ideologue. That's how Obama put that together to become the editor of the law review. Yeah. It's really instructive when you consider the rest of his career, his career. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, mentioned New York magazine. When I first met you, I think was when you were working for New York magazine, yeah. but there was, how did you end up over there? You know, you left, yeah, Graduate I mean a lot of a lot of things happened that which will be too, will be too much detail for this podcast. I left. I worked for the Economist magazine in London, and then in Washington, I ran that Washington bureau for a while. I went to work in '96. I was working for uh, for both for the New Yorker and for Wired magazine at the same time, covering that campaign. I eventually moved to California. Uh, to work for the New Yorker full time and to write a book, um, and I wrote about I wrote this book about Bill Gates. And, yeah, and, right. And the Microsoft. Antitrust I wanted to ask you about that, but go um, ahead. And so when I at the end of that, I, I really again kind of I, I kind of deviated from politics just a little bit. Although the truth is, the reason I got involved, interested in the Gates thing was because I felt like I could tell the story of the, from the political side because I was I, I thought I could originally kind of came into that with the notion of writing about it from the perspective of Joel Klein and David Boies in the United States kind of taking on Microsoft. And I did, and the intersection between Silicon Valley and and, it, and politics was what got me interested in that. And then Gates became a very big figure. And I thought, you know, in a lot of ways, I remember there was one of the things in that book where he said to someone over dinner at one point, I'm more powerful than the president. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, I, th- th- like, I was interested in Gates already, but that made me like I was like, this is a great story to tell, right? This guy who thinks he's more powerful than the president being confronted with the power of the U.S. government. That's a, like an interesting thing to do. How, just let's stop there for yeah. a second because having written this book about Gates, talk, talk about the evolution uh, of Bill Gates as a public persona from the, that era to now when he's really seen in ter- uh, more for his philanthropy yeah. than for his uh, dominance of the... Uh, of the the, of the, the tech spacers, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a you know, the, the, if you think about um, Rockefeller, Morgan, um, you know, many of the great uh, uh, industrial titans of the early or in financial titans, they have they have huge. Uh, philanthropic institutions that still live on to, through today, the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, the Morgan Library. There are these things, these, they endowed great philanthropic institutions. There is a well, theory. We're sitting on a campus not far from the Rockefeller Chapel. There you are. This right. university was 
uh, really created by John D. Rockefeller. Right. So Vanderbilt, there's tons of them, right? And and they all there there are various interpretations for what those guys did. One of them is that they were, although they were robber barons, they also understood uh, an obligation to give back, and that they were building institutions that would outlast them as be part of their legacy. Right. Another is that they felt some guilt over the sins they'd committed. Guilt over their guilt. As, as, yes, guilt over their guilt, yes, yeah. T-I-L-T, right? Yeah. Over their robber baron-like behavior, their monopolistic behavior, their crushing of workers, et cetera, et cetera. And they were trying to, in some ways, buy their way into heaven. Th- those interpretations are not mutually exclusive. Um, but I think Gates, at his, his interest in philosophy, in philanthropy, came about really in the cauldron of the trial when he was, people forget how pilloried he was and how much he was turned into by his own words um, from an important deposition that he gave in that case that was videotaped, um, from his behavior, the way the government portrayed him. He, was a, he had gone from being one of the most admired figures in America in the 1990s to being a hated figure at the end of the 1990s and the early part of the 2000s. And he then really started getting involved. The Gates Foundation had just sort of started up in that period. And I don't can't I think there probably there was some degree of both of those motivations that were the same kind of motivations that motivated the earlier robber barons. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's clear that he was a very young man, and unlike Morgan and, and and Rockefeller, they got rich. But he got rich, he got really, really, really rich, really, really, really young. Much like you know President Obama leaving office is still at a very young age, right? Mm-hmm. So the big question for all these guys is. Once you've become what the, do you do? the ultimate titan of the information age or president of the United States and you're 50, what do you do next? And I think Gates, both because he thinks it's, he's a first-class intellect, and I think he thought that the, the challenges that could face a well-run philanthropy were intellectually interesting. I think also he's become someone who, going through that crucible of the lawsuit and the threat to break up his company, became more... He learned, like he matured as a human being, at least from what I can tell, mm-hmm. and started to realize that he had this obligation to give back in a great in a greater way. Um, he's had an enormous impact. He's had an enormous. I mean, look, I mean, when the history of Bill Gates gets written when he, after he passes away at some point, you know, I don't know what the lead will be. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, Microsoft at so that you, point you, may. You're talking. Just like reporters talk. Well, but yes, of course. I mean, but it is a great question. No, it is. It always is. Because Microsoft is now, I would say, and I in my book, I got a lot of flack for this at the end of the book back in 2001. I said, you know, Microsoft is over. It's not important anymore. And it may exist for a long time and produce a lot of revenue and make happy shareholders. But IBM is still around and no one cares about IBM. It's not a powerful company. It's not a feared company. It's just a big company. Who cares? I thought at that time that it was obvious that with the rise of the internet that Microsoft was going to be eclipsed by more powerful forces. It's now obviously true that that's the case. No one cares about Microsoft anymore. Again, that's not to say they don't make good products or make their customers happy, but you know, Google and Facebook are you know much more the environment that yes. we live in. Mm-hmm. So will people write 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and Gates has passed on? Will people write about him? I think obviously his role in the beginning of the digital revolution is – epic and historic and important, but the kind of work the Gates Foundation is doing and has done already and will do for the next 20 years could affect the planet almost as much, maybe more, you know, than the stuff he's done in the realm of like launching the PC revolution. Right. But there are like, I'm, I think you're going to have to write a, a split lead on that, you know, probably yeah. on his obit. Yeah. Or maybe it's just as you say, which who, who was the creator of, uh, you know, who, who spurred that revolution and then took the proceeds and became one of the world's great philanthropists. Yes, I think that's, you know, I, I think the lead. Those, things will be, those things will be competing, I think, in yeah. that lead, you know. Yeah. So you teamed up uh, in uh, 2007, I guess, with Mark Halperin yeah. uh, to cover the 2008 campaign, and you wrote a book that is uh, a famous work now game change yeah what was your objective uh in doing that first of all why'd you team up with halperin uh and secondly i'm sure you asked that on given days as he asks that about you (laughs) as all Uh, partners do exactly yeah um uh but what 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 was your goal uh, so to pick so to pick up the thread you dropped after i finished doing all this tech the doing this gate stuff I basically said, you know, it's time to go back to the East Coast where all my friends are. I moved to New York and I started working for New York Magazine Mm -hmm. um, and uh, wrote about the 2004 campaign from there and wrote about, um, started to head into 2008 as being... Were you there? What year was that? 
that you went back? I moved back to New York in 2002. Oh, so you just missed the mayor's race there in 2001 and 9-11 right. and all right. that. Yes, right. I moved back right after the, in the summer, literally the summer after 9-11, uh, and started to work for, uh, left the New Yorker, Adam Moss hired me at the New York Magazine. I thought they were doing something kind of exciting there, and so I started working for Adam and writing the political column there and also doing long features on, on for the magazine both. And... Really, uh, 2008 looked like it was going to be a great race. I know one of the things we've learned about is that every other presidential election is amazing. And the ones that are not the every other right. ones are like, eh. you know, incumbent elections are like a little bit of a snore. But, right. you know, 1992, incredible election with yes. Perot and, you know, right. 2000 recount, incredible election. Um, 2008 looked like it was going to be incredible, especially when you started to see that Obama and Clinton were lining up to run against What each did other. you think, by the way, when you saw this guy who bummed the cigarette off? you uh, now emerging as this sort of dynamic force in American politics? Well, like everybody else, but maybe a little bit more than other people. Again, I've, I've always made it really clear to, to everybody, like not, you know, Barack Obama, not a close friend of mine, uh, but <laughs> someone who I like, you know, we'd, he li- literally lived a block and a half from us in Somerville. And so we would, we you had to walk through the divinity school to get to the law school or the Kennedy school. So, you know, I'd, we'd see him you know, all the time. And I played a couple poker games with him and uh, I was on the court with him a couple times, but he was, because of the things that I described before, if you were interested in politics, you were paying attention to Obama, mm-hmm. like just from a distance, like, okay, oh, he's running for the state Senate now. Okay, that guy, you know, mm-hmm. over there. and then of course, the 2004 convention speech, we right. all you know, pay attention to. I, as you may remember, um, was, you know, I covered the Clintons for a long time. So mm-hmm. I was very, uh, with some guidance from people like you and others, but I was very, I felt very, from the beginning that she was very vulnerable to the kind of argument and the kind of person that he was. Not necessarily that he was the front runner because he wasn't. She was yeah, the, he she was she was the she was the most likely democratic nominee and the most likely president of the United States until the night of the Iowa caucuses. But for a long time I could I sort of looked at that and said, you know, this is there's something interesting happening here. And you may remember that uh, after you guys won the first quarter fundraising battle in 2008, we put Obama on the cover of New York magazine with a piece that I wrote that was the headline of which was the winner. And then, like with an asterisk that said, you know, of the first quarter fundraising numbers, but the but the the announcement there was, was very, a, there was a method to your madness. Yes, there, yes, yeah. yes. And and so um, I was, you know, not surprised. I mean, certainly after the convention speech, you knew he was going to run. At least you get you had your in your gut, you suspected he was going to run for president. When was he going to run? Would he run in two thousand eight? That was the bold thing you guys did. The boldest thing was to say, "Fuck resume." Fuck the Senate. Fuck doing all the stuff that people think you're supposed to do to have enough enough experience to run for president. You got lightning in a bottle. Let's go. We're going to take a little f bomb break here and go to the uh, uh, and uh, for a word from our sponsor, and we're going to collect ourselves and come back with okay. John Heilman. Good. The but talk about the book that you guys right. wrote because there have been books. Uh, Teddy White wrote his series that were sort of they they were. They were breakthrough books in the sense that they did give you something of an inside sense, right. uh, but um, it, they were sort of a hybrid between history and that. You guys, um, you wanted to tell a story in a somewhat different way. W- what did you set out to do? Well, we had not – I had known Mark for a long time. Um, and we've been friends and friendly mm-hmm. for a long time, spent a lot of time on, on campaign trails. And when we, we did not set out in 2007 to write the book and we had no plans to work together or do anything together apart from having the occasional dinner and, and hang out a little bit until April of 2008. And I will say you guys know how to eat. Okay? Yeah, that's you, true. You know how to pick a good spot. We are, um, there are among, I'm a man with many enthusiasms and good, <laughs> good food is among them. Um, so we met up. Right when John McCain went to do his biography tour, which you may remember, we went yes. around to all these places to remind people of what his life had been like. I had just, during the middle of the Pennsylvania primary, where there was like six weeks, you know, if you remember that, between... I do. That began with the Reverend Wright yeah. uh, issue. and There know. was a couple, There was a, about a four-day period in that Pennsylvania run-up where I thought I could probably get a, a, a few days off because I'd been working like without vacation for like a year. So I went skiing and... Uh, and then flew from Aspen to uh, to Washington to meet up with Mark to go to one of these McCain events at Annapolis. 
And I had been thinking the whole time I was on the mountain about the fact that it was crazy no one was writing a book about this election. Like, And I understood why they weren't because – You literally went to a mountain and had this revelation. I did, literally. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, under the influence of really, really good uh, really good skiing experience and some other substances, I, I spent the entire time – I spent the entire time just thinking about that. Like why was no one writing a book? Why was no one making a movie? Why was no one doing a Romana Clay, doing like a primary colors? Like we, we knew that no – there were none of these books. None of this was in the works. And this campaign had been incredible already. Right. right? And this is still months before we even knew who was going to win, although we kind of knew Obama was on track to win. It was months before Sarah Palin ever appeared on the landscape, but it was still incredible, right? McCain. Anyway, I got to Mark. I flew to DC, got in a car with Mark, drove out to this event in Annapolis, and it was one of the worst political events I've ever been to. Like we got there expecting McCain in front of thirty thousand screaming midshipmen, and we got there and he was at the at the Annapolis football stadium with an empty stadium behind him, standing on this kind of rotunda above it. So the backdrop was empty seats. And he had a speech that like the teleprompter ate like some of the speech and he sort of stammered and staggered through it. There was whipping cold wind (laughs) and there were like eight people, eight like old Annapolis grads in front of him. And like the pictures. Yeah, there's a portrait. It was it was horrifying. Right. You know. And we got in the car and I was, I said, you know, someone should be, this is another one of these moments where this should be, um, this should be a movie. And we gradually talking through the fact that we had no experience writing screenplays and that we had no experience writing novels. We sort of backed our way into the one thing we thought we could actually do, which was to do a nonfiction narrative about this. But you, to your point, the key thing was to us was that the reason there was no, there were no other people doing this that year. And that was the publishing industry had decided that these books were not right commercially viable and you know they had the richard ben kramer experience of what it takes and it took him six years to get the book done it's a great book an incredible book a fantastic book and one of the great books ever written about politics but it had been kind of a from the publishing industry's perspective it was like a proof point that these books did not work they took too long the, the, the and they and they were no matter how great they were they didn't sell and there were other examples of that more contemporaneous more more recent i should say uh but we thought if we went to a publisher and said these are incredible characters, right? Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, John McCain, John Edwards, like just those people. They're like different. They're not like normal candidates. That's not like Al Gore or like right. John Kerry. Right. These are like Hollywood celebrities already, you know, and they're all super – you see them on, the, on stage with Oprah and you see them on the late night shows and they're, they're pervasive. Yeah, larger America, than life. Larger than life and pervasive in American culture in a different right. way. Right. And we said, look – if you could really strip back all of the everything and just get to the core of who these humans are, these kind of amazing characters, and what it's like to go through running for president in 2008, and you could tell that story in a really interior way. Yeah, like, in a kind of novelistic way. Would anybody be interested in that book? And it turned out that publishers were interested in it. As were uh, producers, and you ended up, it right. ended up as a very highly regarded movie on uh, HBO. HBO. And, you know, they were interested and people were, again, it was a very, that was, a, it was when, it's funny that when we wrote the book, you know, the subtitle for the book is Obama and the Clintons, McCain and Palin and the race of a lifetime. And I now, after now experiencing this campaign, I'm like, look back on that and go, wow, race of a lifetime. But let me huh. ask you a question about that. You were at some of these Palin rallies. Yeah. Uh, were you in Minnesota when McCain confronted that I was woman? not. But my question is, there was, uh, there was, were the roots, there were, there was uh, were the roots yeah. of Trumpism evident in those crowds to you or looking back yes looking back yes i mean i I had never seen anything you know um i had never seen anything quite like that at the time there was ugliness in those crowds for some period of days towards the end and i remember being in an event with you guys maybe in like ohio somewhere like about a week before election day and and the your security had been upped there was like a, there was, and it was notable. You could see that the way that there was more Secret Service around than there had been before. And I remember talking, maybe not to you, but to some mm-hmm. sources on the campaign and saying, this looks like more security here. Is that what's going on? Because it was in the moment when this stuff was. Yeah, it was red hot. Not just when McCain confronted that woman in the crowd, but that went on for days after that. Like it was red hot and things were happening at those Palin rallies that people were discomfited by and I don't mean just Democrats but everybody it was just a little, little it was a little scary and the stuff that's happening now with the press started to happen then and again we of all for the course of my entire career dealt with the fact that you know Americans are skeptical of the press and that the mainstream media is uh, criticized often and that conservatives in particular think there's right. liberal bias and if you're people will come up and you know say nasty things about you being in the press or whatever but you know 
Which is at, why it's not a crazy tactic for Trump right. to, uh, to, especially in light of all the reporting that's been done on, on some of his problems, right. to turn on the media and make the media a bright, shiny object for his supporters. Right. But that was the first time, in the Palin context, was the first time I heard people not individually saying nasty things to me or to reporters, but in mass at events turning on the press and yelling at the press mm-hmm. risers, you know where there was hostility and, in, in, and again, a crowd with exhibiting that kind of hostility. I had not seen that before some of those Palin rallies. And we're at different, we're, we're at, it's taken, been taken to a different magnitude. Yes. Now. Right. Well, and, and I didn't see it in 2012 either, to be honest. I mean, like in that same way where there was kind of like a, you're like a little weirded out by the fact that there are 50 people who've turned on the press riser and are yelling. Now it's happening with some uh, routineness. But it wasn't really being fomented by the candidates no. in 2012. No. Well, pr- pr- Trump has obviously taken it to a totally different place by, you know, like pointing, like calling out the media and calling them disgusting and calling them saying that they're rigging the election for Hillary Clinton and saying, I mean, he's been doing this for months, even before in our current moment where the, the rigged argument has become much more um, uh, prominent and uh, venomous and I think deleterious to um, a lot of the things that we care about in our democracy. Yeah. Um, I do wonder what happens after the election as a result of this, if half, if, if, Something shy of half the country is dubious about the results because their guy didn't win. Well, yeah, and dubious not just dubious, but yes, I I, I think because I don't be- think if 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 uh, Hillary Clinton were to lose, which I think at this point seems very remote, right? If she were to lose, I don't think you'd see the same reaction from her supporters. No, there'd be all kinds of other reactions. No, I think you'd have a freak out. Yes. I mean, there's 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 a. I mean, the thing that's, that's, that's different about this election is the apocalyptic nature of it on both sides. And one of the things that's most clear, if you go spend time in Brooklyn, one of the things that's clear is that they- At the Clinton headquarters. At the Clinton headquarters in Brooklyn, right? Um, I live in Brooklyn, but, um, uh, but you go up the road to the Clinton headquarters. What you find is something that's totally intuitively obvious and something you never experienced with, uh, with Barack Obama in either one of the elections that you were on, which is that people are there- under working under extraordinary pressure of a particular kind, which is the pressure of going home every day and hearing from all of your democratic friends that, that it's up to you to stop the apocalypse. <laughs> like if you don't stop Trump, this will be apocalyptic. I'm not crediting this argument. I'm just merely saying that is what they hear every day. And so like when Hillary Clinton was going into that first debate, I think the pressure on them was really, really high yeah. because they do hear this reinforced over and over well, again. And there was a lot of hand-wringing at that moment. They believe that if Trump were the president, that the country would be destroyed. That's their view, right? And they hear it every day. So that creates a particular environment. Because the Trump supporters feel the same way about Hillary. They, 100%. I was just going to say that. I was going to go to that and say, although it's a little different because I think Trump Tower is not a, a proper campaign in quite the same way. So they're not, they don't have this army of people who go home and talk to Republicans in Manhattan who are saying that well, kind apparently of thing. Apparently, they, they, they often don't talk to Republicans. Right. There's a yes. big fissure there. But you can see like the difference is you know, Trump being headquartered in New York the Republicans who don't like Hillary Clinton in New York don't think that she's apocalyptic in the way that Democrats in New York fear Donald Trump. So there's a different kind of just as a cultural thing. Right. It's slightly different. It is clear out in the country that that there are many, many Republicans who feel the same way about what would happen to the country if Clinton got elected as Democrats feel if Trump got elected. And all of that has kind of conspired to create a, a much, much more charged and emotional and I find kind of unpleasant environment than I've ever had in covering politics before because both sides now basically think that it's my job to stop Donald Trump slash Hillary Clinton from being president. And if I'm not doing that, I'm failing the country. It's really not my job to stop anybody from becoming president. It's not, right? Yeah. And people, but Which people... It's different than saying I want... I, And I'm sure they both have their... Uh, Devotees, and I know lots of folks, you know, uh, on the Democratic side who've known Hillary for a long right. time and are inspired by her. But uh, this thing you're talking about seems to be driving a lot of what's going on. Hundred percent. And again, I mean, I'm not. My life is great, and I'm not saying this in a whiny way. But it's weird the extent to which there are many partisans who think that if I'm conducting an interview on television with someone from the Trump campaign, that they wouldn't put it quite this way, but this is true, the effect of what they really believe, which is that I should be yelling at that person, mm-hmm. essentially through the entire interview. That's yeah. my job, is to yell at that person, denounce them, and expose them as a fraud. 
and vice versa on the other side. That right. if that if you conduct a respectful interview with a Clinton surrogate or so it's or harder, harder to do your job. Well, it's more it's just more unpleasant. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just it's it's kind of like you having to explain to people that our job is to be tough. Our job is to challenge people on the facts. Our job is to hold people accountable, but in the end, to do so in a respectful way that tries to get the relevant information out so that the actual people whose job it is to decide who's president, which is every like the 150 million people or 120 million people or however many it's going to be who vote on election day, can decide. That's, 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 I mean, we should be tough with everybody, but in the end, our job isn't to tear down the Trump campaign or the Clinton campaign. Our job is to let, you know, try to get all the information out there and let everybody else make a decision. Yeah. Although there is this issue of by getting information out, if the information is information that some campaign doesn't like or their supporters don't like, their response is this is in a, inappropriate information. Of course. Um, before we go, yeah. I want to ask you as someone who does look at the, these characters as characters, uh, as novelistic kind of characters. Yeah. Talk to me about the characters, not the character, but the characters, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You can talk about the character, too. But who are they based on the ob- your very intense observation uh, over time? And you've probably had a lot of exposure to Trump just being a New Yorker because he's a yeah. presence there. And, and it, I ask because one of them is going to be president. So what are the things that what are the most salient qualities that you see in each um, let me talk about Clinton first. You know, um, some of these things will be banal observations, right? She's really smart. She's really dedicated. She's been really dedicated her life to public service. Um, she knows about policy. She's incredibly well prepared. I don't think very many people think that on the merits she's unqualified to be president of the United States. Even no, people- but some people question what you said at the beginning. Yes. And I don't know that they've done a very good job of of I did they did at the convention of burnishing her history right but there is this caricature of her right. as so solely a holy self interest right I see yeah, so I was going to get to that you know I think I think those all those things are true it's all the things I said a second ago I also think it's true that she's um, obviously been politically self interested and has cut corners in a variety of ways and one of the things that I find you know, like covering both Clintons for my entire career is that this notion I think it's deeply true that their view is. That they they have they have a view of their own virtue that is inflated to the point where they believe that cutting corners is okay because in the wash and again they would never put it quite like this this is my gloss on it but that in the wash they've done so many good things for the world that it justifies the corners they've cut the dirty deals they've made the ways in which they've compromised themselves on 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 principle and on ideology that they things they ostensibly believe in the people they've sold out the people they've sold thrown under the bus they've done all those things you know and there's a grubbiness and a skeeviness to some of the ways in which they practice politics collectively and independently over the course of their careers that makes many people, including many Democrats, a little uncomfortable and a little bit queasy. And the sense of entitlement that they have, which is essentially, again, this argument of, you know, you hear it most clearly with President Clinton and the foundation, which is essentially saying, well, we had to do a lot. We've got to do a lot of dirty deals in order to get those malaria drugs to Africa. Basically, that's the trade off. You know, there's a greater good here and you need to trust us as the arbiters of, of what, of, of what the tallies are here. If you guys trust us and understand that we're in this for the right reasons, you will cut us slack on some of the stuff that is a little unpleasant to look at. I think that's one of the things that makes her vulnerable to certain charges that the Trump campaign and others have leveled, including the Obama campaign about her compromised nature, right? That's been a, a, so- a sore spot for her for a long time. And there's wor- there's stuff to work with there on the, both the Democratic side and the Republican Interesting side. Interesting to see uh, in the WikiLeaks uh, material, the, the speech to Goldman or someone where she invoked Lincoln and the th- fight for the 13th right. Amendment and so on. And, you know, Lincoln would be... I revere Lincoln. He would be in jail probably today for the things oh, that certainly. that 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 he did in terms of trading jobs and yeah. and other emoluments for yeah. uh, for votes. So uh, it was an interesting uh, invocation, you yeah. know. I mean, and it does, you know. There is this um, 
you can't take the politics out of politics thing. Right. But uh, but I think part of the but I, again just to not to drag you into this, but <laughs> I mean I do but I do think like you guys homed in on on that on some of those the queasiness that a lot of Democrats had with. Uh, general purpose Clinton fatigue, and with the specific kinds of compromises and 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 again, this kind of just skeeviness that made a lot of Democrats uncomfortable with the notion of her being the nominee. And you guys exploited that. I think Bernie Sanders was less effective at exploiting that, but he tried to exploit it to some extent in the Democratic primary. And obviously, there's different kinds of things because you guys, once you had won, if she had won, you guys would have supported her and, and said that she would have been a better president than John McCain. But the core the vulnerability that's there is there for a reason and it's exploited it's been exploited both by democrats and republicans um and i think that there's some truth in it right that there's that it's there the vulnerability is not a made-up thing what about trump i think you know people I, i'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist although i wish i had the ability to prescribe drugs that would be kind of awesome to have a little prescription pad which um, is why you you yeah. never get certified yes yeah, so that's, that's, that's fair it's probably a good thing that i don't yeah. have that power i don't have you know he looks like a classic narcissist to me, you know? I mean, again, not having the the, yeah. the, the, the cool toolkit to offer that diagnosis definitively. You know, he's a very charming guy up close. That's just the reality. You guys have spent time with him. Yeah. In your show, you yes. do the circus. Yes. On Showtime, you spent a bunch of time with There's him. There's a reason he's a charismatic guy. He's char- He And again, and people get mad when you say these things because, you know, well, who cares about what he's like in private? The re- reality is that you can't understand his rise Without throughout his life, you can't understand why a guy like this has become was so successful with The Apprentice, was so successful in staging a hostile takeover of a party that he wasn't a member yeah. of a couple of years ago. You can't understand that without understanding that there is a great degree of personal magnetism around him, and that he's been very savvy, and some would say evil, but savvy and understanding the ways understanding better than everybody he else knows who what ran buttons to push in people and he understands also the you know, in a, in a, with a degree of acuity that was lacking on the part of all of his rivals literally all of them the degree to which the republican party had changed and understanding again you could say in a calculating diabolical way if he doesn't actually believe some of the things he says which i have some doubts about the way starting with the birther campaign and then moving his way through the issues the hot buttons that he seized on just as a pure matter of political analysis, he understands what the Republican Party is now and how to motivate a large part of it in a way that no one else who ran against him did. And so there's a savviness to that. There's the personal magnetism and all that other stuff. But I think on some basic level, when we first interviewed him the day after he announced in Trump Tower, two things were true. The first was we asked him what Thought what, how likely he thought it was to become a Republican nominee. He said about 30% to be the nominee. And the second thing he said was, if this isn't working for me in a couple months, I'll just quit because I'm not a masochist. Like if the voters don't want me, fine, I'll go back. I have a really good life, right? So I don't think he thought he was going to be the Republican nominee. And I think that he was perfectly willing to walk away from it if, if, if it wasn't working out I mean, for he was him. ready to be the Republican nominee? No, no, I don't think, I'm not sure anybody's ever ready to be a major party nominee, but I do think that like it surprised him when he rose to the top of the polls instantly and then stayed there for month after month after month. And then, you know, what happened is what happens to all of them, right? Which is that success reinforces itself and you start to think, I deserve this. Mm-hmm. You know, I am, you, all of them, all of them have a certain kind of messianic quality that gets built up. Some are better at like keeping that in perspective. But when you stand in front of crowds as Barack Obama has and as Donald Trump has and other people, you stand in front of crowds of 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people day it's after day after intoxicating. day. It's, it's intoxicating but, and also creates various forms of delusion. I think he now is, you know, I don't know. This is to me the most interesting question is does he know that he has probably lost and is are the things he's doing now designed in a really, really cagey, um, also kind of diabolical way to build an anti-Clinton coalition on, that, and he maybe can, a network. that he can monetize yeah. through another business venture yeah. after this is over? Is that his game right now? Or does he actually believe that 
you know, there are all these uncounted millions out there who are going to rise up on election day and prove all the polls wrong. It is an I interesting don't know. question because the fact is he, he defines the world in terms of winners and losers. Losers, right. And there's no more, there's no greater certification of winning and losing than whether you win a race for president of the United States. Right. If he loses and loses by any kind of margin, that doesn't comport with his self-image. Right. And so it's not clear whether it's calculus or not. Yeah, uh, on uh, calculated or not on his part, but what is clear is that he is now. It seems to me systematically trying to delegitimate the process in order to explain a law. There is no, there's no question about that. And to me, and we're going to talk about this on our show. You know, that seems is the conventional wisdom, and I think it's right. Like he's been doing this all along. The rigged election argument is clearly an argument laid out a predicate for explaining away a loss. Right, that's clear. The question is, in the short term and the long term, whether it's serving other functions, like in the short term, is it? does he think it's motivating his base? Does he believe, again, that there's a hidden vote out there and that somehow making that argument, in addition to the other arguments he's making about Clinton, will motivate a base and get a bunch of new voters to come out that no one's counting right, right now, the pollsters are missing? Does he believe that or not? Again, I'm not crediting that that's true, but is that part of what he's right. doing? And the other is, is he calculating for after the election? Right. Is he thinking about... You know, if you can get, he's got 14 million people voted for him for in the Republican nomination fight. If you can get 14 million people plus, let's add another 6 million, 10 million, 24 million people, let's say that, 25 million people who believe the election was stolen, that the media rigged it, um, not even if it's voter fraud, but like the, that the media's constant uh, highlighting of his problems with women. If 25 million people think the media was so biased against Trump that they stole the election from him and they think Hillary Clinton is Satan, that's a pretty powerful market. Yeah. To start you whatever you want to start. Probably, you probably need 60 million in this election, 60 to 65 to win. Right. It's not enough to win an election, but it is enough to start a network. And, you know, my uh, and I'll, I'll leave on this note. Uh, you know, my concern is that um, we have to have we have to govern after this. Yes. And, and what's very clear to me is that if he loses, Donald Trump is not going to make a gracious concession speech and say, I, gi- I give my full support to the next president. You cannot imagine him doing what Mitt Romney did in 2012. Or Al Gore in 2000. What Al Gore did in 2000, what, uh, what John Kerry did in 2004, right. what John McCain did in 2008. You cannot imagine him doing those things. I mean, maybe we'll all be surprised and suddenly some... Surprised this, on the upside? Uh, maybe. I, I'm not saying I think... I'm, I'm, I'm praying, right. though, because the truth is... I mean, put aside the questions of are you undermining the fundamental tenets of American democracy, which I think he may be in some respects. Put aside that. Just ask the question, what's it going to be like to have to govern? Yeah. No, it's a very troubling it, and and uh, difficult uh, uh, question. And so, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton could be the dog who caught the car you right. know, at the end of this deal. You think about what happened with your guy when he came into office after a relatively unifying election and having gotten McCain's support, you know, and then yeah. giving a speech in Grant Park that was magnanimous and big and saying, let's, I want every, I'm going to be, if you didn't vote for me, I'm going to be your president, all that stuff. And then he walked into office and the Republican party was ready to, to undermine him from the moment he walked in. Think about how much worse it will be for well, her. Well, the other now. thing is they, they discovered that the way to hold an incoherent party together was to uh, by anti-Obama, through anti-Obamaism. And I think that could be more severe now because their party is is even more incoherent. Yes, and she will be even more hated. And this part of the, this rhetoric has been part of his rhetoric now. So again, it's like the problem that Obama faced, even with Democratic control of the Senate and House, the problem will exist and potentially will exist times 10. Well, on that cheery note... <laughs> I want to thank John Heilman for being here and also for being uh, uh, at the Institute of Politics. Looking forward to a discussion there. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 